In Jeremiah chapter 31, so right about uh, kind of getting towards the second half of the book now, we have this text here. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will plant the kingdoms of Israel and Judah with the offspring of people and of animals. Just as I watched over them to uproot and tear down and to overthrow, destroy, and bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant declares the Lord. If you remember what we talked about last week, the kind of core of Jeremiah's call to be God's prophet was this notion of God doing some dismantling work and also God doing some building up work. So here we are 31 chapters later, God's still reminding Jeremiah that this is what he's planning to do. In those days, people will no longer say, the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Now I know this is a saying that you use on a regular basis, in your own life, and, uh, and this has nothing to do with sort of the kind of disappointment at arriving at the communion table and turning out it's not real wine. That's not what this particular uh, text is talking about. It seems to be a wisdom text from the time of Jeremiah that speaks to the question of blame. Uh, this text uh, seems to have been used to sort of talk about how sometimes we would sort of push our blame towards the parents and say, hey, it's because of what the parents have done. Sometimes we push our blame towards the children. But notice what God continues in this statement where he says, instead, everyone will die for their own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, their own teeth will be set on edge. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So I arrived in Calgary three years ago now. And any cultural shift that you go through, you find yourself in a new context. Perhaps you've moved from one city to another city, or perhaps you've moved from one province to another province, or perhaps from one country to another country, or perhaps you've even, like me, moved continents. And what you'll notice when you move continents is many things are different. And one of the most profound areas of difference that I find between our countries and our continents actually comes down to the issue of sport. <laughs> North America plays different games from the rest of the world. You have games on ice, which seem to mostly be about fighting. Despite protestations that this is not the case, my observations tell me we're just here to watch people fight. And then you have other games which take place on grass. A game called football that involves neither feet nor balls. It seems to be more properly known as hand egg. Uh, based on this. I have, I have been to these sort of games and I always have gone with somebody. I've never yet gone to a new North American sport on my own because I need somebody with me so that I can ask the same question to them every time I go. What are the rules here? 
Like, what's going on? I went to a football game, and, and it was difficult for me because I know what football is supposed to look like. <laughs> it's the game that, again, the rest of the world are playing. And we are evading North America slowly and bringing you over to the beautiful game, but still, you persist with your funny-shaped ball and the players with all of the packaging that they, they seem to wear, and yet still, apparently are not allowed to fight. But I went to one of these games and, 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 and at some point somebody grabbed the squashed ball and they ran to the other end of the field. It looked relatively straightforward. And um, they ran to the other end of the field with brief interludes to hug each other. That seemed to be what was doing a big group hug. Uh, and which it was impressive because I was happy to see everybody so in touch with their emotions and feelings that they would just gather in front of thousands of people to hug one another from opponent teams. I thought beautiful. Um, uh, then this, this team, they made it to the other side of the field with the ball, and the horse appeared and, uh, and started running across the field. And uh, I had read Wikipedia before I went to the game, and this at no point was mentioned that a horse was involved in the game. But I thought, you know what, it's Cowtown, maybe that's part of the rules, I, I don't know. And, and so I'm watching these sports, and I've had to learn all sorts of new rules, because again, in the beautiful game, there is only one rule, put the ball in the net. At the end, there's only one statistic that we're interested in. Was your amount of times the ball went in the net less than our amount of times that our ball went in the net? But here in North America, you love statistics. You have statistics about everything, and there's all sorts of, sort of ideas as to how the rules are being worked out. And it strikes me philosophically as we look at sport, perhaps, just perhaps, one of the reasons we love sport so much is because of all the rules. Because for a very brief moment, in the chaos of our lives, for an hour, or two hours, or if it's football, four hours that we call one hour, <laughs> the rules are being applied. For a brief period of time, there's a set of people on the pitch. We know who are on our side. We know who are not on our side. We know who we cheer for. We know what we don't cheer for. If somebody starts to break the rules, if they step out from the lines, if they, if they treat somebody in a way that we don't approve of, if they do something we don't like, there's a person there to enforce the rules. And this seems to be one of the reasons we love sport. Because once we leave the stadium, once we switch off the television, do you notice that life just doesn't work like that? That all of a sudden the rules are not so applied. They don't seem to be so well adhered to. In fact, there's not so much agreement on what the rules are. And for us as humans, I think that's complex because we want to know how things work. In Jeremiah's time, the question that was being asked is not that dissimilar to the question that we are asking today. How are things working? Like, what's actually going on? How are the things put together? And one of the questions that happened in Jeremiah's time is essentially then the question of, of, of what's God doing? Is God playing by the rules? Is God doing things the way he's supposed to? Because we have expectations about how God is going to behave, but what if he isn't behaving in that particular way? The question is framed by theologians as the question of theodicy. If God is good, why is there so much evil in the world? If God is who he says he is, why does it seem so often that the rules are not being adhered to? In Jeremiah's time, this question wasn't new. We find ourselves in exile. We find ourselves oppressed by foreign nations. What does this mean about God's relationship with us? What does this mean about God? In Jeremiah's time, asking this question generally drove you towards lament. And if the lament was too much for people to bear, sometimes it even drove them towards other gods. 
If we don't like the way God seems to be working out the rules, maybe we'll go and find somebody else. In our time, I think we still ask the same question. Is God playing by the rules? Except that our response to the question is different. When we decide that God isn't playing by the rules, often what happens in our contemporary climate is we abandon God. And we decide, well, what makes more sense, perhaps, is for me to head out on my own. If God isn't making sense, let me trust the one thing that I think is trustworthy, myself. And so we find ourselves navigating life, trying to make sense of everything through our own frame. But of course, this creates a problem for us. Because one of the advantages of believing that God's kind of working everything together is that when things don't work quite right, as you see in the Old Testament, when things lead you to a place of lament, you essentially begin to ask God a series of questions. Why is it working this particular way? Why aren't you interceding to change this? Why aren't you doing anything, God? But our step in the contemporary climate away from God creates a new unanswered question. Who is to blame? If we can't blame God, if we've decided to navigate life on our own, who's to blame for the way things are? In 1910, the Times of London decided to write to several famous authors of the time to ask them one particular question. What do you think is wrong with the world? The authors were invited to write a piece for the newspaper and the idea would be that we would see various people in the, in the, as the turn of the 20th century was beginning to gather momentum, we would see sort of the combined brains of the, of, of the country speaking to what they thought was wrong. The well-known Catholic writer G.K. Chesterton received this letter from the Times and was asked this particular question, what is wrong with the world? Chesterton replied, dear sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton is renowned for his erudite expressions, for his articulation of profound thoughts. And here, in two words, he gives his logic to what it is that's wrong with the world. But notice what Chesterton does with this letter. He essentially moves the question for us. The question of what's wrong with the world is so often framed as a theological question. Essentially, the blame is God's. Why is, you know, how could I believe in a God that allowed X, Y, or Z to happen? How could I believe in a God that allows evil to happen? So the question, what's wrong with the world, even in our contemporary climate, where our views on God are sporadic, it's still often a theological question. What Chesterton, however, does is he moves the question and makes it an anthropological question. The question is not one for the reign of God, but one for the reign of me. Where am I in the sequence of problems? And interestingly, this position that, that Chesterton takes by, by not placing the blame elsewhere, but seeing himself as the locus of the problems that we encounter in the world is actually hugely consistent with what we see Jeremiah talking to us about all those years before. In the text that we read just at the beginning, notice that in the midst of this wisdom poem about shifting the blame, you get this line, everyone will die for their own sin. Jeremiah wants to speak to the people of Israel and point out that the time for blaming something else isn't here anymore. Something's shifted and the responsibility for the mess lies at our own feet. We have to take some responsibility for the way things are. Now, this is an old message from 2,600 years ago, but I wonder how much we could reflect on that in our contemporary time. And we live in a culture of blame. We live in a culture where we're constantly looking for who is responsible for the mess that's going on. 
And yet very rarely, even now, what is it, you know, 109 years after Chesterton, very rarely do you see anybody own the problem in the same way that Chesterton does. The problem is the politicians, or the problem is the environmentalists, or the problem is the oil and gas industry, or the problem is, you know, it's, I'm just jumping into non-controversial examples. Um, <laughs> the problem is never me. You never hear that. You never see that in our political debate. You never see that in our economic debate, that what if I'm the problem? In Jeremiah chapter 14, several chapters before the text that we're working on this morning, we see this message. This is what the Lord says about this people. Notice the beginnings of the distance in God's language, by the way. He's talking to the people of Judah, but he calls them this people, not his people, this people. They greatly love to wander. They do not restrain their feet. So the Lord does not accept them. He will now remember their wickedness and punish them for their sins. If you've spent any time at all reading about Jesus, if you've spent any time in the Bible, if you've passed by a church at any moment in your life, a text like this probably surprises you a little bit. If you're long-rooted in the, in, in the world of Christianity, if you've followed Jesus for many years, this text is terrifying to you because this sort of damning position that God offers is not only scary, but it sounds so unlike what we've come to expect from God. That God would remember wickedness. And then this moment here where it says, and punish them for their sins. Now, we want to stop a little bit when we're asking questions about where God is in the world and what is it that God's doing. We want to stop and ask a couple of questions about the language here. You see, oftentimes our, our view of God is, is very much like the great puppet master. That the way things are going on in the world, God is basically playing a big game of chess and he's just moving all of the pieces into place. But the way this text here is translated, when we hear it, punish them for our sins, that could reinforce that imagery to us. That yeah, God is just playing around with this big game and he's moving characters as he wants them and punishing them as he wants. But actually, if you kind of root yourself into the language that Jeremiah is using here, I understand why the translators sort of frame this language as punish, but the language is actually more the language of cause and effect. One way you might want to tr translate this if you had more space would be see that God allows the fruits of people's deeds to come to fulfillment. You might want to say something like that, that God visits the results of people's behavior. Essentially, this is what Jeremiah is constantly trying to say to us, is that quite often what we encounter with God is that he just allows history to take its course. We choose to behave in a particular way, and it's not that God kind of comes down and disrupts that by punishing it, but sometimes God just lets it play out. That sometimes we get the situation that our behavior deserves. Sometimes the way we do our economics, the way we do our politics, the way we do our sociology, the way we do our philosophy, it's not that God intervenes to stop it and punish it, it's that God actually just allows the punishment to come in the way that the world goes. We get the politicians that we voted for. We end up with the economic situation that we behave towards. We have neighbors that we deserve based on our behavior. What Jeremiah is trying to say is that again, the responsibility finds itself so often with us, that we live in a world where cause and effect quite often happens, that what we do is what we get. 
And this is a big problem in Jeremiah. If you were to read the whole book, and I know I've encouraged some of you to think about doing that throughout this series, but if you read the whole book, this is the problem. However, we ended up where we are, the people seem to be saying. Like, we thought we had these promises from God, but now a foreign nation is taking us into exile. This nation is oppressing us. We, we feel like we're being enslaved by our enemies. This wasn't the deal that we thought we had. Because what the people of Israel have bought themselves into, the people of Judah have started to believe, is that God has his covenant with them, and they have their covenant with God. And the expectation is that God will always play out things his way, regardless of what they do. They've kind of got themselves caught into this cycle where God continually cleans the slate. And no sooner has God cleaned the slate than they've made a mess of it again. Israel are behaving like like a four-year-old let loose on a tidy bedroom. That no matter how much you tidy up, you know that five minutes of, of not observing them, this place will turn into chaos. And this is seemingly what's happening, that God keeps putting things right for the Israelites and the, Judah, the people of Judah, but they keep rejecting it. And they keep making a mess. And essentially, at the time of Jeremiah, the question that's underlying a lot of the, the, the theological discussion, at some level, the theodicy question, what's going on in the world, is a question of forgiveness. How is forgiveness working now, God? How is, we thought we knew how forgiveness worked, that we make a mess and you just sort of put it all right, that we come to you and repent and you then forgive us. How is forgiveness now working? And I would encourage you that forgiveness requires some thought. Forgiveness is increasingly growing as a subject of interest in our contemporary world. In fact, recently I've been reading reports and, uh, and insights from scientists where, where the social sciences and the researchers are now beginning to say things about forgiveness that the religions have actually been saying for, for quite a long time. In fact, controversially, the sciences are beginning to suggest that maybe the religions have something in them that might be worth listening to. Of course, they're not saying that publicly. Essentially, what we're seeing in the social sciences at the moment is the realization that forgiveness is good for you. Amy Westerfeld, in an article called Letting Go in a, in a magazine, he says this about one piece of research that was done. Forgiveness was widely correlated with a range of physical benefits, including better sleep, lower blood pressure, lower risk of heart disease, even increased life expectancy. Really, every benefit you'd expect from reduced stress is found by living in a place of forgiveness, by experiencing and encountering forgiveness. In fact, one study at Duke University in North Carolina discovered that the the HIV positive patients had improved immunity levels if they lived with greater forgiveness in their life. That their ability to fight disease went up based on how well they were able to forgive. But of course, what's fascinating in the contemporary literature around forgiveness is it does something that we kind of have an obsession with in the contemporary modern culture, is that all of our forgiveness works out within a sort of self-help context. How do you forgive the people who have wronged you? How do you bring forgiveness into the situations where harm has been done to you? And this is a kind of obsession that we have in the contemporary climate where where it's like, "Well, well, I have been wronged, how do I set that right? And there's a level of which we're even kind of shocked that we ever are wronged in the world, despite the fact that there's nothing about world history that suggests that you get through life without being wronged. We've become more and more sensitive in our current state to being wronged, and therefore we're better and better at blaming people. And so what we do with our forgiveness is we're constantly looking at how do I offer forgiveness to the people who have wronged me? 
But Jeremiah's conversation about forgiveness, while still placing it centrally, doesn't really deal with the question of how do you forgive people who have wronged you. Rather, the question in Jeremiah works on the assumption that you are the one who needs to be forgiven. And we don't talk about a lot about that in the contemporary context. We don't often think from the perspective of, like, what about me? Generally, our assumption is that I am in a position of innocence, and therefore, how do I set everybody else free? But Jeremiah wants to talk about the mess we've got in ourselves and our own need to be forgiven. How do I receive forgiveness? And that's difficult for us to read, I think, as modern people. Can I really cope with the notion that I might be wrong? Like, I can cope with the notion that I might have been misheard. I can cope with the notion that you may have not quite understood what I was getting at. But can I really cope with the idea that I was actually in the wrong? And if I can make that psychological leap to accept my own wrongness, what do I do about that? How do I solve that problem? And this is where Jeremiah turns the table for us. Having set up the premise throughout the letter that actually things are in such a bad state that God is beginning to essentially see the failing of the relationship he's in with these people. In Jeremiah 31, he he rolls out this, this new idea, which is called a new covenant. I will make a new covenant. Because the beautiful thing you'll learn about God if you read Jeremiah carefully is this. He doesn't leave us stuck. God's never going to leave us in a problem where actually this isn't working anymore. And actually, I I can't keep just going round and round in circles on this. But this is the God who doesn't leave us stuck. So he now offers a new covenant. And he explains it. This is the covenant I'll make with the people of Israel after that time. And we get three ideas. I'll put my law in their minds and I'll write it on their hearts. So it's no longer a law that's in a book or on stone tablets, but it's somehow formed within us. I will be their God and they will be my people. But notice then he pushes that further. Who are these people? Well, no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And then, reversing what we heard in chapter 14. In chapter 14 and verse 10, we saw a God who remembers wickedness and who punishes sins. Now in, in verse 31, chapter 31 and verse 34, we find a God who will forgive wickedness and remember sins no more. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33 and 34 is essentially, I don't think I'm overstating it to say, the sort of apex point of biblical theology. Old Testament and New Testament all kind of balance on this moment here, where God starts to look towards this new covenant, Now, that language hopefully echoes somewhat in your mind. Maybe you're thinking, I feel like I've heard that before. And just before we gathered around the communion table, we were reminded that what we're doing in this move towards the table is acting out and behaving within a new covenant. But a covenant that doesn't simply wipe clean and say, let's start again, but a covenant that is deeper and wider. Now all will know me, says the Lord. And that might seem like an amazing promise on its own, just the fact that God's now blown out the barriers and and pushed away the boundaries in terms of who he's trying to reach with this new covenant. But actually, the text is even more amazing than that. In the tail end of of verse 34, you, you find this push into something profoundly amazing. Well, I say profoundly amazing. Profoundly amazing unless you really, really love the rules. Because now God promises an inverted process 
of forgiveness. Now God promises that forgiveness is just offered to everybody. Now God promises that forgiveness comes first. Before repentance, before the sense of feeling sorry, we find God's forgiveness is on offer. And now that's quite complex for us if you think about it. Because generally in in, in day-to-day life, there's a sort of order that things go in. There's an order of how forgiveness is supposed to happen. You know how it works. Someone wrongs you. That person comes to you to seek forgiveness and acknowledge your rightness and their wrongness. The person comes towards you and they say, I'm sorry. And you make an assessment on this. You do this all the time. What is the tone of their voice like when they say sorry? Somebody goes, I'm sorry. If you go up a little bit, you know, in that kind of nice, friendly way that we do, if your voice just goes, lifts just towards the end, don't believe that. That's not a real sorry. No, or if it's too intense, like that's just faking it. So the, the appropriate sense of, of finding forgiveness in our contemporary world is so often about how you tone the word sorry. If you say it wrong, no forgiveness. If you say it right, maybe just maybe forgiveness. But of course, if, even if I forgive you, I'm still gonna hold my distance a little bit and just see how it is that you behave to decide whether I'm really gonna play out this forgiveness. And if I'm not sure about it, I'm just gonna keep that in my pocket for a long time and just hold it against you in every argument we have until whoever which one of us dies first. That's how we do forgiveness. And yet here, the tables are turned. Now we're told that forgiveness is just offered to us before we even say sorry, regardless of whether we even mean sorry or not. Forgiveness is there and ready and waiting. And notice then it says, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. This is not simply just forgive and forget, however. The biblical language of remember carries a lot of weight. Whenever you see the word remember talked about in context of God, for God to remember is for God to act. So when God remembers something, he acts on something. Inversely then, if God doesn't remember something, what the text is really saying is that God will not act on it. So this promise in Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 34 is essentially offering something different to us. What it's saying to us is that God has obliterated the consequences of sin because he will not act in regards to them. Not only will God not act regarding sin, he will have no memory of what it is. Sin in this new, com- this new covenant, sin in this new relationship that we have with God is essentially now non-existent. God has beaten it out before we even got there. Now, this might not then surprise you to find that this particular passage is the longest, most quoted text of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Six times you find this passage rolled out in the New Testament, reminding us of this new covenant, and even in the text that we read around the communion table, that there is a new covenant that obliterates sin. So hopefully what you're hearing, even as we just read this and this text was hanging out on the screen for you, hopefully you're being drawn to what the text naturally will draw many of us to, that it points through history towards Jesus. Hopefully as you hear this new covenant with forgiveness preceding all things, you're kind of drawn to think, I I know this story, I know this understanding of this story. Because Jeremiah points us towards the cross. He points us towards what God is gonna do in Christ. The cross reveals to us what God was always working on, a God who moves first, 
a God who does the forgiving before the repentance. Paul says in Romans chapter 5 that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before we'd even thought about repentance, God was putting things right. And so the cross isn't just a symbol, but it's an action. It's God making things work the way he had promised he would. The cross, the new covenant, what it does is it reveals to us a resourceful God. A God who is perhaps like one of these coaches that turns up in our sports. That every now and again a new coach appears and he seems to see the rules differently and he plays the game differently than anyone's ever seen before. But what Paul points us to in the New Testament and Jeremiah leads us towards in his book is that God hasn't just come in and changed one aspect of the rules, but the whole game is different now. The whole sport has been turned upside down because forgiveness is now available for everybody. The new covenant reveals a resourceful God who wishes to save everyone. Now listen, this is important for us because you're more than likely not going to get through life without having to forgive someone at some point. You're more than likely not going to get through life without needing to be forgiven by someone at some point. And most of us try and figure that out, but when we try and figure forgiveness out, we almost always do it in a very human way. We work out forgiveness by creating rules. And we work out rules that set the parameters for how forgiveness works, for what the expectation is. And we find ourselves living at one point, this is what we imagine life should be, and at another point, this is what life is actually like. And to be truthful, most of our pain in life comes because we live in this middle gap of wanting the rules to be the way they just don't work. And our pain and our disappointment and our anxiety so often come because we're pursuing a rule and a set of standards that not only can nobody else live by, we couldn't even manage to live by it ourselves. But yet we keep trying because we want to figure out the rules of the game. In 1 Corinthians, Paul calls us around a table, a table that's built in a new covenant in Christ's blood. But then he talks about this new covenant. And across his letters, sometimes he talks about it as foolishness. Other times he talks about it as a scandal. Other times he talks about it as an obstacle. Paul understands something, that the world just doesn't work this way. Forgiveness can't come first, we say. You've got to have some rules. We've got to figure out whether you fit within the parameters. Have you played the game appropriately? Because so many of us like our religion to be like our sport. We want clear rules. We want clear winners, we want clear opponents, we want clear scores. But the Jesus story isn't a religious story. It's about a God who wants to invert the tables. It's about a God who wants to invite everyone to gather around. It's about a God who offers forgiveness first. And he offers it to all of us. And in Jeremiah's day, as much as our day there may be 2,600 years between Jeremiah's day and our day, but I still think this is the one thing about God we struggle with more than most. His, the hardest bit about God that we really wrestle to believe and the bit about God we most can't accept, that God just doesn't want to play by the rules. We know the rules that we would want to impose. We know the rules that we would want to have in play. We know where we would draw the line. We know who we would call the bad guys and who we would call the good guys. We know how scores are worked out. 
And then God comes along and offers us forgiveness before anything else. And at some level, your ability to follow Jesus, as much as your ability to understand that you are loved by him, will be related to how much you want to insist that God plays by rules that his new covenant wants to break. Most of us, if we're really honest, still want to believe in a God who requires us to earn his favor, to earn his grace, and to earn his love. But what you get with the God of Jesus, what you get with the God on the cross, and what you get in the God in Jeremiah that offers us a new covenant, is a God who does not remember. So I want to help you remember this morning. You may have noticed as you walk up the road towards Westside on any given Sunday that Westside is steeped in a tradition that many churches around the world are also steeped in. You'll have noticed that churches like Westside all over the place often have red doors. This is not because pastors get a discount on red paint. If that were true, everything would be red in a church. But churches across the world have painted their doors red to deeply root themselves into the theology that Jeremiah talks about in our new covenant. There's a scene just before the Exodus when God rescues the people of Egypt where they find themselves recipients of God's grace and forgiveness and they identify this by painting blood on their doorposts and making their doorways red. We gather around a table, and we said it this morning, and we'll say it many times more. We talk about a new covenant that was bought for us in Christ's blood. So as you wander towards the church on any given Sunday, as you wander towards this building where we meet together as a community, regardless of what your week has been like, regardless of how you've been wronged or how you've wronged someone else, regardless of whether you've tried to insist on the rules or lived in God's grace, as you wander through these, these doors, these doors remind you that by being read, you are forgiven. And that your forgiveness was given to you before you knew it. That your forgiveness was offered to you before you were even aware that you needed forgiveness. That God's forgiveness always comes to us first. And there's something beautiful in this imagery that the first thing we encounter when we come towards the place that we gather as a community is a reminder that we are forgiven. And maybe a lick of paint is all we need to sometimes remind us of that thing which we seem to so easily forget. So let me pray for you this morning. May you, every time you see those red doors, and every other day of your life too, may you remember the God who does not remember. May you remember that God has solved what is wrong with the world by forgiveness not by earned forgiveness, not by achieved forgiveness, not by playing by the rules forgiveness, but by forgiveness rooted in a new covenant in Christ's blood. So may you, may you live confident that God has forgiven you and may you never forget to remember that. And may his grace and peace be with you this Thanksgiving. Amen and amen.